Hello, and welcome to Theories of Change, a podcast about climate change and the various strategies and approaches to addressing this global challenge. I'm your host, Sarah Ladislaw. Twice a month, we'll talk with experts about how to affect the kind of change needed to bring about a more manageable climate for future generations. We'll talk with people from all walks of life who sometimes approach climate change from very different angles. We mustn't leave people behind. There's a lot to be done about how we can make sure everybody sees a role for themselves in this future. Rachel, it was just a couple of months ago that we sat down and talked about the way that you view the challenge of global climate change and how we're positioning relative to that challenge. But it, it does seem like a couple of years ago uh, because we've experienced this coronavirus pandemic and economic downturn and you know, a real experience where people are changing the way they think about lots of different things. And so wanted to give you an opportunity to talk to us about how you think the coronavirus pandemic experience has changed the way we think about climate change or changed the way you think about the challenge of dealing with climate change? I mean, is this a headwind to everything we talked about before? Are there new opportunities as a result of this? How are you framing this in your own mind? So I think that COVID-19, it's almost like a break in the clouds when you think about how we respond to it and what in terms of the energy transition and the response to climate change. So you know, both a zoonotic pandemic, COVID-19 and climate were threats in plain sight. We knew the probabilities, people had been warning, we hadn't been paying attention uh, or action wasn't urgent enough or systemic enough. So there's a big learning there about what it really takes to respond to crises in, in good time. But when, specifically when it comes to the energy crisis, the disruption to energy systems, the impact of geopolitical maneuvering together with the collapse in energy demand at the height of the crisis in the West means that there's a dislocation at the level of firms, there's a dislocation in terms of uh, how we think about the role of fossil fuels. Uh, renewable energy has taken up a lot of the strain in many markets around the world, but you know, renewable energy companies, you know, are suffering the economic downturn just like everybody else. And so as we think about stimulus and as we think about recovery, the question is, how do you stimulate the recovery to tend towards cleaner, greener power? And how do you make sure that those that public money that is being used is not simply creating or, or sustaining zombie companies, right? These are companies that are going to be, you know, on the losing end of an energy transition. Uh, And that's an issue in the developed world, uh, but it's also an issue in terms of the international financial aid that goes to developing countries where, you know, IMF funding and funding from development banks would normally go into public budgets and those public budgets are used to prop up state-owned oil companies and things like that. So we have an opportunity, that's for sure. Whether we take it or not, I I think is really the big question. And what is your observations been so far about how both national governments and the multilateral community are positioning around this issue? I mean, I think at the outset, a lot of people thought, oh, well, this will be something like, you know, the great financial crisis and the economic recovery will look something like the way we coordinated at a G20 level. And I would just say, by and large, we haven't seen that. So, I mean, do you have thoughts about how, you know, governments have so far sort of mounted to this challenge? Well, first of all, it is a financial crisis, but it's way more sort of 
widespread than 2008. 2008 was a banking bubble, a banking crisis. This is a crisis of equity, of debt. This is a crisis of the total economy. And we're talking about recessions in a number of economies and potentially depressions in a number of economies. So it's, it's more global and it's more of an economic crisis than the financial crisis of 2008. That said, we didn't see the urgency that one would have expected to see at the international level. So the G20 and the G7 kind of slow walked it. So did the Security Council and General Assembly of the UN. You didn't have committed multilateralists in key positions running around trying to get ahead of the problem. So if you think about 2008, you had Pascal Lamy and Bob Zelik ahead of WTO and the World Bank respectively. You had Gordon Brown and others around the world uh, working furiously, and you had the US engaged, and you had China not quite at the level of importance that it is now. You know, fast forward 12 years, and you have a US very insular position. You have a little timidity and weakness in those multilateral organizations. I think the only one that really came out and, and screamed, sort of, the house is on fire, really was the OECD, and, and they're not, uh, they're a policy shop, as it were. I think the IMF also has got more than 95, like 100 countries asking for help. So this actually poses a fundamental business model problem for the IMF. And you saw at the spring meeting, you know, the reluctance of US Treasury to consider a new issue of special drawing rights, really tying the IMF's hands behind its back uh, in terms of you know, how does it raise the money to be able to support all of these uh, countries? So lack of leadership, question mark over committed multilateralists, all of that has meant that the response hasn't been as uh, strong as it should be. Well, you know, it's a testament to just your sort of expertise in thinking about this issue that most of what we talked about two months ago still very much holds when you think about the longer term transition to a low carbon future and a climate resilient future. Just wanted to ask before we launch into that conversation that we recorded before, is there anything you really want to see happen within the next six to nine months that you think would really be potentially very helpful for heading us off on the right track? So I think, you know, I'm a, a hopeful pessimist and I have sort of have two thoughts, right? One is that we actually do have to put sort of scaffolding around the current international system so that it does what it needs to do right now. And that's both in terms of health and the public health response and World Health Organization, but also you're making sure that developing countries have got access to finance in order to make sure that they can keep things going while they deal with health emergencies. And then at the same time, we do actually have to, and I've written about this, be able to engage in what I call cathedral thinking, right, which is building the thing that you that your children will enjoy, right? And that means, is this a new Bretton Woods moment? Is this a new, is this a moment to rethink exactly how we want to work going forward? So at the moment, we measure our success with GDP. GDP does not, in, you know, internalize externalities from an environmental perspective. It also is really pretty bad at measuring you know, investment in the things which we now know are so important, health, education, etc. So we've seen small countries moving towards well-being budgets. Don't we all really need a well-being budget now? And how would you do that alongside GDP if you don't want to let it go? So there needs to be that sort of, and Laurence Tubiano has just written um, in the last couple of days about this. Others have written about it. And there's some sort of serious work going on about what would a new system look like. So I think we do have to be brave enough to say the system, even if you put the band-aids on it, is really limping. The danger is to do that at a time when you don't have committed 
multilateralists in key positions in key countries around the world. Yeah, that's perfect. Rachel, I think that captures it. Is there anything else you wanted to add? So I think the other issue that has come to the fore in living through this crisis is our relationship to systems. I don't think most of us have really, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about how globalized our food supply is or how globalized a lot of things are. But but now, as that has become disrupted, so, so they are. So what does that mean for how we think about local when it comes to our own resilience? So what does that mean for distributed energy, for example? What does it mean for locally grown food, for example? So obviously, the most resilient energy supply is you know, very, very smart, clean grid, you know, complemented by distributed or off-grid resources. Is that going to filter into policymaking going forward? Does that change the public's imagination around their own uh, energy system because they're now a little bit more sensitive to what it means to be resilient? I think these are some of the potential uh, shifts in public debate around services, and it will be interesting to see which cities, which states, which countries seize upon these moments. So you've done work on climate change, sustainable development goals from a number of different vantage points for a long time. How do you, in your own mind, characterize the issue of climate change and where we stand relative to that challenge today? It's interesting. My my wife, who's a psychologist and has not worked on sustainable development, but has watched me work on it for better part of 20 years, said to me yesterday, you know, it's really all about this now, isn't it? And it is. So it is the context for how we build a more inclusive society. It's the context for how we will educate young people so that they can adapt to the future of work. It is the context for the air we breathe, the oceans, sea level rise, you know, where are you going to buy a house? I mean, it's the context for every economic decision that we have to make now. And so I think we're standing at the bottom of a steep mountain. But if we turn around and look back, we can see that we have climbed other mountains in the past and Mm -hmm. got to where we are. It's not an insurmountably high mountain, but we are not fit enough at the moment to scale it. <laughs> so we need a good workout program to be we able need, to get we up We need the muscle memory, we need uh, muscle strength, and we need a bit of grit. Yep. And so what are some of the systemic challenges that you see that are in the way of us being able to tackle it? Are they mostly economic or technological or social Well, I don't think we should write off some of the technological challenges. I mean, I think we have an awful lot of technology that we could deploy today at scale and it would make things much easier. But there are technological issues that we've got to work through. We've got to have stable grids that can take all of the amazing amounts of renewables that we could actually stand up pretty quickly. We've got to work out how to, um, you know, make uh, offshore wind effective in very deep seas. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't that we don't have technological challenges, but I think most of the problems really political. We have to pull the levers of the economy, both in macroeconomic policy terms and fiscal policy terms, immediately to shift ourselves in the direction towards clean. And there are all kinds of vested interests and all kinds of short-termism which prevent us from doing that. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I think a lack of political courage from the political class in a number of parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And what do you see as like some of the key interactions that you're looking for to overcome some of those challenges? I mean, is it sort of, as you see, you know, a lot of people talking about today, more 
sort of bottom up voices, more activism to change the political reality? Is it something about, as you mentioned before, sort of vested interest in the existing system? Like, what are some of the key sort of interactions that you're looking for to see us to overcome some of that systemic? Well, I think it is top down and bottom up. We haven't made these kinds of shifts in social norms, political norms, you know, economic systems without bottom up and top down. You can be afraid of the word revolution, but that's what we're really talking about with a small R, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a political revolution, but but it's a revolution in the way in terms of we generate energy, the way in which we use energy, the way in which we pay for pollution, the way we subsidize, you know, not subsidize harmful things like fossil fuels, but subsidize, you know, the poorest to make sure that they've got access to clean fuels, to uh, healthy food, all of the things that they need, which will be more difficult to get their hands on unless we intervene. But what I think is most important to hold on to is that we need to stop doing stupid things, stupid (laughs) things being polluting the planet and killing ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that's stop coal as soon as possible Mm -hmm. everywhere. And that means helping people do something other than that and then really do lots of smart things. And that means, you know, an incredible upscaling of our investment in infrastructure, which we as an international community have been really bad at Mm -hmm. for the last 20 to 30 years anyway. I mean, whether we were talking about green infrastructure or any kind of infrastructure, we didn't build back a lot of infrastructure after the financial crisis in 2008. We did not uh, optimize a a decade of low interest rates with massive amounts of infrastructure investing. And now we really do. We could have a green hydrogen economy in the next 10 to 15 years, but that requires massive amounts of infrastructure investment. And that requires the financial markets and government, public and private, to work together in a scale and a determination which seems to elude us much of the time. Mm. Do you feel you mentioned short termism, which I think is reflected in the comments you just made about infrastructure? You know, we tend to think about, you know, not maintaining the infrastructure we have and certainly not building infrastructure with a view to the, like the long term. But right now, a very robust conversation going on in terms of thinking about how we send those signals to folks who invest in that infrastructure or even financial markets for considering right. the long term implications. Do you have a significant degree of hope that we might be able to encourage more of that long term view towards how we have the built environment? I mean, we know how to economically incentivize this, and it would require government to give a very heavy steer to the financial markets. It would require public pension funds and others to be encouraged to take up, have appetite and actually get into infrastructure sectors. Mm-hmm. You know, and it would require a, ch- a shift in mindset because there's always a headline. And there's always a politician that will decry the cost of doing something. You know, know, this railway line is going to cost us this much. This road is going to cost us. This bridge is going to cost us this much. This port development will cost us. But, you know, nobody talks about the value of that over the 10, 15, 20, 30 years of its lifetime. So we have to sort of re-educate ourselves about the fact that you have to build stuff. Mm -hmm. And now we have to build it to be resilient and to be part of the clean economy. So we can do this, but that requires... As you said, a decadal view, okay, 2030, 2040, requires national leaders, state level in this country, local leaders with stomach. And it requires, you know, coming together. And that's where the bottom up, I think, is important, where communities are coming together saying, yeah, we're going to work together to make this happen. You know, I I now live in Boston. The cheapest dispatchable power for the northeast of the United States would be hydro from Canada and offshore wind neither of which are easy to make happen because of all kinds of different lobbies and special interests and small interests. 
you know, how do you build the space to bring together multiple states, multiple countries, multiple communities about the fact that if we invest in this now, we could have incredibly efficient, effective, reliable, um, clean and affordable power for the next few decades. Mm. I want to ask you very similarly on this theme, but given your background and all the work you did for sustainable energy for all, mm -hmm. you oftentimes hear that there's sort of something I characterize often as a false choice, but a choice between cheap energy resources or resilient low carbon energy resources, particularly in a developing country context, and particularly after that first tranche of energy access has been achieved. How do you think about overcoming some of the barriers in that context to building the kind of infrastructure that has the long-term value that you're talking about? Well, I think that the market is taking care of a lot of the argument. And at the same time, I think you've got a certain generation of enlightened leaders now in countries where you've got large energy access gaps and they're taking care of the rest of it. The question is, can we deliver quickly? So just to put it in context, there's about 850 million people who don't have access to reliable, affordable, clean energy today. They are predominantly living in parts of Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. In fact, the vast majority of them are living in Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, who are they and where do they live? Well, most of them live in sort of 16 countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, so broadly across the Sahel. Those are the countries with the largest energy access gaps. Some of those countries are war-torn. Some of them are coming out of conflict. Some of them are suffering you know, cycles of drought and, and, and other economic challenges. The people who don't have access to any energy, which is that number that I mentioned, they are rural communities, which means that in most cases they're women-headed households, or they are living in the periphery of the fast-growing towns and cities of sub-Saharan Africa. So they're living beyond and below the power lines. So the by far the cheapest and most effective way to reach those people is with mini grids, microgrids, household level systems, solar home systems, etc., using renewable energy. Now, you know, in most countries that we're talking about, the utility may be, you know, barely solvent, may have weak management, and is mainly today sort of oriented around how much energy can be generated and transmitted and distributed through the grid so it gets as far as the grid can go. And that's how you take care of your urban populations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, those urban populations need to have reliable, affordable, clean energy too, otherwise you don't get return to power, and that's been the traditional dynamic. But today you see countries moving very fast in the right direction, Kenya, Ethiopia now, Cote d'Ivoire, Senegal, even some breakthrough projects in Malawi and Zambia. So you, this is a blend of grid-connected clean power and off-grid clean power, and the two coming together to give you resilience. Now, are there people who still want to sell you a coal-fired power plant? Yes. There will be investment in these kinds of power plants from captive industrialists who want to have reliable power for their refinery or their you know, cement plant or other things. And then there are some countries that will want to sell you that kit as well and that gear. But increasingly, I think decision makers know that they, they don't want dirty air. They don't want polluted cities a la Beijing or London or Delhi. And so what is the pathway to green and clean, reliable and affordable. And that's where I think the international community has a responsibility. These countries have a disruptive potential. They, they can leapfrog. They don't have to follow our pathway and our trajectory. And how do we help them do that? I think that's the responsible thing to do. 
you know, you've been doing this for a while from a number of different vantage points. And, and you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that, you know, while we have a long way to go, we've made some progress. In your personal experience, like how has this challenge changed since you started working on climate change? And what are some of the most important lessons that you've learned in doing the work that you've done that you like to pass on to others? Well, I think the big change in the last couple of years is that it's here and now. When I was arguing in the mid-2000s, right, for stress testing, the portfolio of the multilateral development banks at that time, you know, how much carbon have we got, you know, in the very early stages of discussions around stranded assets and bubbles before we'd even put those names on it. It was too easy to discount because it was like this problem was going to happen, you know, decades in the future and it wasn't material. When we first started looking at you know what what are the resilience that you would what's the resilience you would need to build into infrastructure development in the developing world we were dealing with really scant information and it was always going to happen to somebody else in the future somewhere else and i remember that uh, it was I think it was in 2012 2013 when i was at the world bank we did the first reports then they were called turning down the heat and those are the first reports that looked at the economic impact of what the climate science was saying. I mean, that's only seven years ago, which feels like a lifetime, but really isn't a lifetime. And so what I've learned is that this thing is moving faster than we thought, that we are very bad at really taking the science and turning it into policy approaches, that that takes time. And then I think the, the grassroots are pushed to the side, the views are discounted. And so, you know, you can have somebody who's experiencing it directly and, and you have to find a voice from inside the mainstream who will say what you're saying to be taken seriously. And so I remember the first conversations around whether or not we should be advocating for 1.5 or whether we should be advocating for two. Mm -hmm. And I remember my own hesitation and doubt about whether that was politically smart. I remember the sort of dripping cynicism of the people that I went to and sort of said, what do you think? Well, you know, there's a movement around this. You know, this would seem to make sense from a development point of view. There's no point asking for two if many of the countries we serve are going to be underwater or uninhabitable at two. And what pushed me into the, into the 1.5 camp was a conversation among women, many of us coming from very different backgrounds, but all working on climate. And I was in my head and I was like, yeah, but if you say that, you know, this block of countries will take this, you know, and this will be discounted over here and the bankers won't. I mean, I was, you know, I was in my head <laughs> and two of my really good colleagues just sort of sat there and said, look, you know, this isn't numbers. We're not talking about numbers. We're not talking about the political stance or the policy paper or the way we're, we're talking about whether or not my culture survives. And they were using their heart and their head. Mm -hmm. And I just think that modern politics is quite bad at that. Yeah. What do you think the result of that shift to one and a half degrees has been to the conversation so far? I mean, you mentioned grappling with the political implications. What do you think it has done to well, the conversation? Well, it's all hashtag net zero now, yeah. right? Which I think is fantastic because it does actually encapsulate it. I mean, it was too easy before... It was so everybody was working on the 80-20 rule before, right? You're 80% of the world's going to have to do something different and 20% of the world doesn't and I'm in the 20%, right? So everybody was still pointing to somebody else and everybody was it was still over there happening to somebody else. 
1.5 net zero by mid-century means that everybody's going to have to change because everybody has to be at net zero. And I think it brings it home in a way that we hadn't managed to do before. Now, the struggle is that we've got an extraordinary number of companies, countries, entities sort of signing up to net zero and Delta Airlines last Friday. I mean, you know, some of the more improbable commitments mm -hmm. because that's a, that's a journey. Mm -hmm. But if everybody does it in the 2040s, we're kind of stuffed. <laughs> right, it's a technical diplomatic term. <laughs> so you know, we we do we do need to see this extraordinary ramping up now of investment in green infrastructure. Mm -hmm. The extraordinary ramping up now mm -hmm. in the ability to you know put other things in place in the decades to come. So you can't make a commitment to net zero and then push it off, mm -hmm. except for those things which technologically we can't deploy at scale right now. Mm -hmm. So. I have this debate when looking, talking about green hydrogen. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am advised that with the technology we have today, there are things that we could do today. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, there will be better technology in the future, but it doesn't mean that you wouldn't do what you can do today. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where politics really can make a difference. Your point about having sort of hard chargers or early actors, you know, particularly in that context, speaks to what I was going to ask you, which is, what do you think needs to happen next in your sort of theory of change? What are the next building blocks that sort of lead to that next increment of action or progress? Well, I think 2020, I mean, this is a sort of real moment for the EU and for China. The summit that they have in the fall just before the climate talks in Leipzig is incredibly important. And of course, this is very fragile because... Angela Merkel is in a weakened position at home. And of course, China is now coping with coronavirus. And you couldn't wish for, you know, that was sort of the worst timing, right? I mean, so on an individual level, we hold, you know, the people of China in our hearts. And then, you know, just like this is when they need to be focused in, in a way that no other country has been. Because if that relationship can stand in for what was the relationship between the US and China that got us the Paris Climate Agreement. It wasn't the only thing mm -hmm. that got us the Paris Climate Agreement. We wouldn't have got that agreement without that dialogue. You know, you, there's got to be some anteing up going on and that, that it's, it's a dance and we need that dance to be danced. So I think that that's one thing. I think uh, secondly, there is extraordinary opportunity for coalitions of the working and the willing to continue to do what they've been doing for the last decade or more, which is, you know, building geographies where things can happen. So if you can just go back to hydrogen again, if you can build a clean hydrogen economy, sort of Rotterdam and around, right, and use it for, for ships, use it for trains, use it for refineries, use it for everything and show how it can be done, mm -hmm. then, you know, maybe you build the know-how and then you can do that, you mm -hmm. know, um, in East Africa can do that across South, Southeast Asia. There is still room for everybody to be a hero. You know, we, we live in a time where populists who've decided to be climate deniers can be decried and can be the enemy, quote unquote, with mm -hmm. a small e. There is still room for everybody to be a hero. You know, everybody could do something and it would be better than nothing. But we really do need to muster up some courage. What are the positive or negative shocks that you see to the system, either the things that you worry about that could set back real progress or things that you're hopeful for 
I mean, maybe $10 billion from Jeff Bezos doesn't necessarily equal a positive shock, but it certainly got a lot of people thinking about what big catalytic change could or should look like. What are some of those things that you either worry about or look out for on the positive side? So it's it's interesting because there are really sort of unsexy things. If we started doing them at scale tomorrow, you know, we start moving towards hyper-efficiency, start doubling down on the effort to sort of retrofit the built environment wherever we can. We start investing massively in mass transit and new forms of multimodal, you know, and start taking cars out of cities and things like this. And if we did it like faster and more furiously and with more excitement about this green future we're building, Mm -hmm. this would make a huge difference, Mm -hmm. right? The work on protecting soils, protecting land, it's absolutely fundamental. And, and, you know, just getting behind the discussion, which is already going on now about what are we eating and how do we eat it and and making sure that the, the poorest of the poor get access to the food that they need mm-hmm. that's nutritious and available to them. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is a lot that we could do that, that isn't the new bright sparkly thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the policy agenda is not a new bright sparkly thing either. I mean, it's taxing or putting a price on that which you don't want in the economy. Mm-hmm. And incentivizing that what that which you do want, and the speed with which central bank governors are embracing the issues of macrocritical risk, the speed with which, especially if the ECB starts stress testing banks, the speed with which the financial sector could start sending different signals, mm-hmm. the speed of the divestment movement. I mean, divestment is one thing. Now we need all of this resource to be invested in that clean future. We can turn on a dime. We do know how to turn on a dime. But we mustn't leave people behind. There's a lot to be done about how we can make sure everybody sees a role for themselves in this future. You know, the media doesn't always help, even the well-intentioned media. But there's extraordinary efforts now. I mean, in the UK, the way that the BBC is doing a whole year of programming about, you know, how this matters to you from garden clubs to, to high government. I think that's what we need more of. I was joking about Jeff Bezos's announcement, the Bezos Earth Fund, but you did tweet something about how the, maybe the philanthropic community hasn't been as focused on community-led resilience and transition and thinking about that side of the equation. And it, to be honest with you, I read a lot of coverage on that, and, and that was an outlier in what people were saying. So I thought it was an interesting perspective about you know, not necessarily focusing yeah. a huge inflection on innovation or R&D, which obviously are areas where we, you know, need to focus or where a lot of other people were commenting, which was, you know, trying to affect a political process or a a political outcome, particularly here in the United States and those types of things, but really focusing on how to think about helping communities protect themselves and think about how to plan for the future. That is, that's a harder conversation. That's a micro conversation in a very macro driven world. I, I thought that was an interesting perspective that you offered. Well, I mean, so setting aside for the moment this discussion about whether philanthropy is an efficient way to redistribute resources within an economy, I believe that's another mo- that's another <laughs> podcast. I look back and I look at where philanthropy has changed the world over the last 50, 60, 70 years, and it has changed the world where it has built movements, built institutions, built capacity within society to do something different or do it differently. And that is investing in bottom up and, you know, coming in top down, but it's not, it, it's not a silver bullet theory of change. 
And, you know, some of my best friends work in philanthropy and some of them are climate philanthropists. But when you think about the scale of the emergency, it is fair to ask, where is the philanthropic community? I mean, how's your opera going to sound when it's the opera house is 10 foot underwater? You know what I mean? So it isn't proportionate. It is not. And, you know, there are from Chris Hone, uh, the Children's Fund Foundation in the Children's Investment Fund Foundation in, in London, through to some of the uh, West Coast philanthropists in this country who are trying to get the philanthropic community to step up. You know, I hear their frustration and I, and I applaud it. So then, you know, look at the ways in which the Rockefellers and the Fords and the, and the others in the 60s and the 70s made women's health accessible to women around the world defended reproductive health and rights and actually made them something tangible to women. They didn't do that by coming in with a prescription. They came in and funded women's organizations across Latin America, across Asia, across Europe, across this country that then fought for the changes that needed to happen. And that change then became sustained and it became successful and it became transformative. And that's what we're going to need. You know, communities have to decide how they want to survive and thrive in, in a climate world. They, they've got to decide which land is going to be given back to the sea and which land will be protected and which part of the community will uh, support the other part of the community. You can't impose that kind of stuff. Yeah. So where are those town hall meetings going to happen and who's going to fund them? Because government certainly isn't at the moment. And in other parts of the world, you're seeing citizens' assemblies growing up, yeah. right? Using the model of the constitutional reform in Ireland, mm -hmm. right? So we've got citizens' assemblies in the UK. We've got them across other parts of Europe, sort of in some countries in Africa as well, looking at the model. So, yeah, frankly, we need citizens' assemblies. And, you know, well, that's a good old role for philanthropy. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> You talk to a lot of people about this topic, and one of the issues that we grapple with here all the time is communities that talk to themselves about topics and not to each other. And so mm -hmm. I imagine in your travels and in your work, you encounter people who think very differently about this or don't think much about this challenge at all. How do you engage in those conversations? How do you try and talk to people about what you think is, you know, as you said, it's the issue now, right? It's the framing issue for everything. And and the truth is some people don't think about it. They just, it's not something that is in their worldview and, and it's not something they think about very often. How do you begin that conversation with people, particularly those that you really want to take this more seriously? No, so it's a really good question. I mean, you know, my, my current sort of discussion is across a university and across a graduate school of international affairs where climate's what gets taught in the engineering school, climate's what gets taught in the energy program or the resources program, or you can study climate and you can study maybe climate politics or whatever. But what I hope is that as we go through a curriculum review at the moment, that climate will be a framing issue for all of our teaching on human security. Mm. But that means dealing with academics and with researchers and with people in the community who fund that kind of work who, you know, are not up to speed with um, the latest climate science or with the implications of it. And so, you know, the conversation, I think it, the way to start is by starting at the individual level, right? So you're concerned with refugees, you're concerned with human migration. Okay, then let's look at the data and the evidence mm -hmm. and, and then understand that this is now causing, you know, a dynamic that we've never seen before. So your interest is in security policy, a battlefield deployment. Okay, well, let's talk about how the military is now thinking about 
how to protect its supply routes around the world mm -hmm. and how to be effective on the battlefield in a world of climate change. So, you know, there is a point of connection for everybody mm -hmm. and bring them to the table based on what they hold dear and what they know the most. So, you know, I think that that's the way to do it. I mean, obviously, you meet people who are not much interested in a dialogue. That's not the case at Tufts and it's not the case at the Fletcher School. But you do travel and meet people who are violently opposed to accepting that humans have got something to do with climate change or that there's anything that we can do about it, sort of a fatalistic view. You know, the town where most of my family comes from is underwater at the moment. 200-year floods in the UK, extraordinary scenes. You know, and the, the local politicians there, you know, struggle. What does this mean? I mean, what flood defences do you build if you're going to flood like this on a recurring basis? Mm. You know, the nationally elected politicians from these areas are climate deniers, proud of it, um, in a minority within British politics because we have a climate act which is supported by all the parties. But, you know, these are politicians who've, you know, had paid trips to Oklahoma which bears nothing in resemblance to the green fields of Shropshire, mm. right? I mean, there's not a lot that the panhandle has to offer, you know, that kind of pastoral community. But when the floods come through, you know, expect the taxpayer to come out and, and pay for, you know, the repairs that they spent little time worrying about up until the point of this flood. Mm. Now, I, mean, I think I tweeted out the other day, you know, you, you get who you vote for. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to have to vote for different people. Yeah. Final question. You are steeped in lots of different resources that people who are interested in figuring out their own theory of change on climate change may not be aware of. What are some of your favorite places to, you know, think about this challenge or your favorite resources that you have for helping to, to sort of guide people who are trying to think more thoughtfully or, or deeply about this issue? So that's a really good question. I think, first of all, I think I have to acknowledge it's it is complicated. The sort of climate universe will fight with itself, a over the over the interpretation of the science, and b then what you do about it, and then how you do it, and then who pays for it. So it can be overwhelming. But there are, I think, people who really break this down very well. So I think that in terms of just carbon and what it does uh, within the planetary system and then what that means economically, I always go to Carbon Brief mm. and I think they've done an extraordinary job. Mm. I think the people at the University of Oxford uh, have done an extraordinary job in translating what this means for the financial sector. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course, that's where some of the ideas around uh, carbon bubble and uh, stranded assets first came from. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's uh, very important to follow. So the financial sector, then the actual carbon itself. I think that there needs to be a go-to source on food. And it's not there at the moment. You you, you have to look around for it. Mm -hmm. But being able to feed the world with nutritious food and a diet that also doesn't kill us, because our current diet you know, kind of kills the planet and kills us, right? It's the largest reason behind chronic diseases of heart and, and diabetes, etc. So there's no really go-to place on that. You can get bits and pieces. And Lawrence Haddad at IDS uh, has done some great work on nutrition, but dig around and, and look for that. And then I think in terms of the newspapers, 
They all do a much better job than they used to. The Washington Post and the New York Times have put good. So the New York Times still will write odd stories when it's not the climate team. You can talk to me later about that, <laughs> uh, editorial people at the New York Times. Polita Clark, um, her team at the FT, the Financial Times, Polita Clark's been writing about this issue and she doesn't write on climate every day now, but the stuff that she does write is extraordinary. And then I think, you know, get views from elsewhere in the world. Global Green Growth Institute in Korea has really mm. good people working for it. Read the stuff that comes out of the Climate Policy Lab run by Barbara Buchner. I'm on the board of the Rocky Mountain Institute and what, what they're doing on cooling and the future of air conditioning is extraordinary. So there's some good stuff out there. And if you get stuck, call me and I'll, I'll direct you in the <laughs> right direction. Well, and, and the good news to add is that we actually do have a food security program here who's ramping up all of their work yeah. on climate change and nutrition so we can add some of those resources to the list. I want to say thank you, Rachel, for spending your time on this issue and spending your time talking to us about how you think about it. It's, uh, I think, really important to understand how your perspective working on these issues for a number of years has shaped how you think we need to act in the, in the years to come. So really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Well, thank you, CSS, for focusing on it and bringing a little bit of light to the issue. Wonderful. Thanks so much. 